If you're like me, you care about getting the most from your workouts, which means wearing the finest performance gear. You know, fabric that dries quickly and has superior moisture wicking properties. Fabric so soft and comfortable, you could, well, curl up and sleep in it. Introducing Sheeks, spelled S-H-E-E-X, the world's first performance bedding line. Sheeks began when two former elite athletes and coaches had an aha moment, combining everything we love about quality performance fabric with everything we love about comfortable, irresistible bedding. Unlike traditional sheets that trap heat, sheiks are breathable, so you aren't constantly waking up to throw off covers or out a blanket. So you sleep deeper, longer, and better. And sheiks bedding looks as good as it feels. Colors and styles that can match any decor at a price that will pleasantly surprise you. And right now, you can try sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Just go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212. This is our number one for the World According to Zig podcast for this April 30th, 2018. My name is John Ziegler. I'm the host of this show where you can get the truth about all sorts of topics from a conservative perspective in this world turned upside down. Our website is www.freespeechbroadcasting. That's where you can find all our past podcasts as well as most of my columns that I write for Mediate as well as any other significant interviews that I do. And uh, we do the podcast now about every other week. And that means there's always a lot to talk about. And this week we have three different sections planned for you. In hour number two, uh, we're going to be speak with a, speaking with an author who has written a book about the news media and how much it has changed. So make sure you check out hour number two. And then hour number three, the continuing never-ending saga that is the so-called Penn State, Joe Paterno, Jerry Sandusky scandal. We have a... Uh, we may only have one actual interview, but we have a series of interviews that will be discussed that are brand new and in any other case would be explosive as we continue to blow apart the nonsensical and absurd narrative that the rest of the news media has bought into in that case. But make sure if you're even remotely interested in that story that you check out our number three. Uh, obviously, uh, our number one, we've got a ton of news to get to. Personally, uh, big news in the Ziegler family. One-year-old Diana Ziegler is now walking. At least, I would say, I think it's seven or eight, nine steps is, is I think, significant and definitely walking. So that's a big development in our home and one we're very excited about. Uh, I personally have a new claim to infamy. I have many claims to infamy, but I have a new claim to infamy. infamy. Uh, in fact, I would suggest that uh, this is probably the only podcast on the news in the whole world done by a guy who has now officially coached a top 10 NFL quarterback draft pick. <laughs> Pretty safe in that assumption. <laughs> but uh, Josh Rosen, who I coached as his eighth grade head coach at Chadwick Academy in Palos Verdes, California, seems like a real long time ago, but in some ways it was not, uh, was uh, drafted number 10 by the Arizona Cardinals in the uh, past uh, NFL draft this uh, past weekend and last uh, Thursday. And I'll talk about that later on in the podcast because uh, that's uh, kind of a, another very bizarre chapter in this very odd life that I have lived and very strange career. So tons of stuff to get to. And when it comes to the news in the Trump era, it's always very difficult to know what to lead with because in most situations, there are stories that would be humongous that often really only last a couple of hours. Like, for instance, it's kind of stunning to think that Donald Trump's batshit crazy Fox and Friends interview was only four days ago. It was four days ago. Seems like ancient history, doesn't it, in the Trump era? But four days ago, the President of the United States called into a morning TV show. I'm not even going to call it a news show because it's not. An exceedingly friendly TV show. And they basically had to get rid of him. 
Because after a half hour of ranting and raving and probably getting himself in legal problems, they really had talked him out. He wanted to keep going, but they had to move on to a cooking segment. I'm not making this up. This is the world we now live in. And there were like five or six moments in that interview that in any other presidency we'd be talking about for weeks. With Trump, it's already old news, although um, I may mention it uh, in this podcast in relationship to the uh, Michael Cohen news, uh, because there has been some on that front. But, you know, traditional, in a traditional sense, the biggest news story is what appears to be happening, what might have been happening with regard to peace between North and South Korea. Clearly, if Barack Obama was president and North and South Korea were claiming that they have come to a peace agreement, the news media coverage of this event would be far greater. It would be far more orgasmic. There's no question that there's a political bias in part of this, but some of that is justified. See, I I do not take the one-dimensional look at this and go, well, the media hates Trump, therefore they're downplaying what appears to be happening in Korea. I don't think that's 100% legitimate. Yes, they would be making a much bigger deal if it was Obama, but with Obama, they would have far more reason to trust that what we're seeing is real. And I can't believe I've been saying that as someone who has been an ardent critic of Barack Obama since very early on in his candidacy in 2007. But that's the reality. Because Trump is not to be trusted on anything. And the reality is he didn't do anything other than act like a maniac to provoke what appears to be happening between North and South Korea. I mean, the reality is... He's making it up as he goes and not. That's Donald Trump. And so... It's natural and warranted to not trust the outcome when the input seems so batshit crazy. Now, does that mean it didn't work or it's not real? No. Sometimes doing batshit crazy things can have the desired effect, if only by luck. Look at what happened in the 2016 election. Trump's campaign tactics were obviously nutty. They ended up working. I believe mostly by luck. After all, he did lose the popular vote by 3 million votes. But it's not the first time, nor will it be the last time, that Trump has gotten a successful result, largely out of luck and, to say the least, unconventional tactics. But I don't think that it is illegitimate for there to be skepticism as to whether or not what we're seeing is real. By the way, I think that skepticism would be legitimate regardless of who was president and regardless of what role they either did or did not have. Now, you know, Lindsey Graham is saying Donald Trump should be getting the Nobel Peace Prize. Apparently, the, the South Korean leader in, indicated the same thing. Let's, how about we wait and see what the hell actually transpires here? Uh, none of this is, is for sure going to even happen. We have no idea if it will hold. It is quite possible. In fact, it might even be probable that we're all being played here, that we're all being duped. I mean, to me, for there to be an outcome that's dramatic, something dramatic has to happen to create that outcome. There has to be at least some level of equality between the input and the output. So what changed Kim Jong-un, what suddenly changed this guy, this brutal dictator, this nut job, into all of a sudden, overnight almost, he's a peace broker to be trusted? What caused that? I have seen nothing. Now, some might say he was afraid of Trump and that that's what caused... I'm not buying. Is that possible? I guess so. I would need more evidence of that, that this is for real. Now, what feels more plausible to me is maybe his missile program has completely collapsed, and therefore he no longer has any real leverage and has nothing to lose by giving it all up. 
or by declaring peace. That seems logical. Maybe now how he would come to that conclusion if he's a maniac, I don't know. But in theory, that actually makes some sense to me. That all of a sudden he realized, oops, I got no missiles that'll work. I'm not going to anytime soon. So I might as well get some goodwill out of this. I might as well get legitimacy out of this. And boy, has he gotten legitimacy. Because speaking of things that if any other president did it, we'd be talking about it for weeks. When with Trump, it barely even makes a ripple. The president of the United States referred to Kim Jong-un as a, quote, very honorable man. A very honorable man. Come on, people. It's just flat out ridiculous. Seriously? Seriously. Kim Jong-il is all of a sudden un, is all of a sudden very honorable. There's a lot of things you can call him and the North Korean regime. Very honorable is not even close. And what does that tell me? Well, there's the side of Trump that loves dictators. I mean, loves tyrants. He loves, he respects that. That's, I think, part of it. But I also think, you know, having some understanding of the way that Trump's psychology works, here's what I think is really going on. Trump sees a headline that's positive for him. Maybe even, as he's even referred to it as, quote unquote, legacy stuff. In his mind, probably the Nobel Peace Prize. If somehow North and South Korea can come to a legitimate peace accord and North Korean, the North Korean threat could be legitimately done away with, that's something that Trump covets, not for the world. Let's be serious. He doesn't give a fuck about the world. He covets this for him. And so in order to make sure that it got to cross the finish line, Trump gave on what he wanted. A little ass kissing and the legitimacy of the president of the United States calling him very honorable. Now, there's a price for that, except Trump doesn't care about that price because he's not going to be paying it in the future. Trump, you got to remember the number one thing about Trump, although there's a lot of things that would be in competition for that distinction, but clearly near the top of the list of things you need to know about Donald Trump is that he only cares about today and he only cares about what's good for him. Tomorrow be damned, especially at his age, he might be dead. He doesn't care. He doesn't care about anyone else and he doesn't care about the future, which by the way, that's an incredibly dangerous combination to have in the president of the United States. It's supposed to be exactly the opposite. You're supposed to care about everybody else but yourself, and you're supposed to care about the future more than what headline you're going to get today. It's one of the fundamental reasons why I never wanted Donald Trump to be president. But the reality here is he was probably greasing the skids. I'm going to give him some credit here. that he, he decided, you know what, I'll call him very honorable, and that way Un will go through with this We'll give him what he wants. We'll give him some butt kissing. We'll give him the legitimacy of the presidency of the United States. He'll be able to refurbish his image, give him what he wants. In exchange, I'll get my headlines. I'll get maybe some legacy stuff. That's my take on this. But whether or not it holds in the long run, I'm going to fully admit, I am the furthest thing, and I'm in a large group of people here, <laughs> I'm the furthest thing from an expert on North and South Korean relations. I don't think Trump is an expert on North and South Korean relations. I don't think Dennis Rodman is an expert on North and South Korean relations. But I just do not trust, my my inherent cynical side does not trust that any of this is real, especially when there's no plausible explanation for why Kim Jong-un has suddenly changed the way that he has. Domestically, the big story of the last few days, and it's probably the most overblown story that I've seen in in recent times, meaning the last uh, few months at least, is the controversy over the comedian Michelle Wolf at the White House Correspondents' Dinner in Washington, D.C. on uh, Saturday night. Now, there are so many layers to the absurdity of this whole thing uh, that I probably don't have time to get into it all. But 
the, the reality is this. Again, with any other president, and this is where Trump, I don't know how much he does this on purpose and how much of it's just dumb luck. Maybe it's a combination. But things that really ought to damage Trump in a rational world end up somehow, at least in perception, helping him. Because here's what really happened. For the second straight year, the president of the United States, a guy who is by all fair assessments, a absolute bully himself, a guy who will attack people on every level, personal, the way they look, how tall they are, maybe even whether or not they're disabled. It doesn't matter. He will attack anybody he sees as an enemy in the most base and classless way possible. And yet this big bad bully for the second straight year has wimped out on attending the one night of the year, which is effectively a roast of the president where the media gets together and they, they, they traditionally have had a comedian who makes jokes about the president while they're sitting there. And it's supposed to be fun. It can sometimes be cutting edge. It's also supposed to be symbolic of the fact that the press has a role of standing up to power. And so there's no better representation of that, no better symbol of that, than here you have the president being forced in his presence to be made fun of. That's significant. Symbolically, that is significant that once a year that happens, just to remind everybody, hey, the free press is important. The fourth state has a role to keep the president in line, if you will, keep them in check. There's an inherently adversarial relationship. The president himself is acknowledging this by attending, as every other modern president has done, and sucking it up. And by the way, getting their own opportunity. It's not a one-way street. They get their own opportunity to rip into the press. Now, Trump hates the press, allegedly, more than any other president, right? Fake news, fake news. And yet, this big bad bull, he not only can't accept getting hit, he won't even take his opportunity to hit back in their presence. Why? Because he's probably not very good at it. Because he's too much of a wimp. That's what it's really all about. He's a wuss. Like most bullies, he is a wuss. So he wimps out for the second time in a row on a charity event. That's the other part of this is important. It's a charity event. So he wimps out, shows himself to be a, a fake bully, bails on a charity event for the second straight time, not to go do something important, but to hold a rally in Michigan, a campaign rally, where he bashes those who are at the event. Again, this tells you a lot about Trump's psychology because Trump can't stand to be in a place where he is criticized or ridiculed. He literally cannot stand it. So what does he do? He chooses to go to Michigan to be cheered and praised and have people say, we love you. So he can bask in the praise of the white trash cult. That's what he's doing. Psychologically, that is really dangerous to me as a president of the United States, where you have such narcissism, such insecurity as president that you have to bail on this event so you can go to the safety as a special snowflake, if you will, since that's what the left is supposed to be. You can go into your safe place in Michigan in this white trash Colt 45 pep rally so that you can feel good about yourself. Now, those circumstances, I, I just outlined them, in a rational world would be rather damaging to a president of the United States. Of course, we don't live in that world anymore. Somehow, everything is the exact opposite of what it ought to be. And this turned out exactly the opposite of what it should as well, at least in perception. Because what ends up happening is Michelle Wolf, a comedian no one's ever heard of, at least I've never heard of, ends up doing a riff on Trump, 
on Sarah Huckabee Sanders, on the media, on virtually everybody that was there. Some of it was funny. Some of it was not. By the way, I've never understood how how funny a joke is is the gauge of how legitimate or appropriate the joke is. I've, I've never quite gotten that. Wait, hold on a second. <laughs> I mean, you, nobody's going to hit 100% on, on jokes. Doing comedy is exceedingly difficult, especially under those circumstances. So you're never going to hit 100%. And the idea that, oh, it was unfunny, that's why it was inappropriate. I, that, In my logical mind, I've never been able to make that work. But some of it was funny, some of it was not. Some of it was just damn right on as commentary, like where she took on the news media for really actually loving Donald Trump because he's been very good for their business, which is what I've been saying and what Trump himself has been saying for a very long time. And I think that's part of what got her in trouble. I really do. I think that Michelle Wolf pissed off the media members there because she called them out on their own bullshit. And they didn't like that. And so then they decided they needed an ex- they needed a, a moral high ground, a virtue signaling reason for why they didn't like her. And so they, they bizarrely chose to effectively defend Trump, although not directly, because they decided she really stepped over the line when it came to Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Now, holy hypocrisy, Batman, because I guarantee you that the news media behind the scenes says things about Sarah Huckabee Sanders that make what Michelle Wolf said seem like um, what you might say at somebody's wedding. I mean, there's nothing, absolutely nothing. I guarantee you the media just destroys Sarah Huckabee Sanders as a liar, as a fat pig, as white trash, a Southern hick. I guarantee you that's that is what they say all the time behind the scenes. What Michelle Wolf said was tame in comparison. And, and the the strangest criticism is that supposedly she she Wolf attacked Sanders for how she looks because she referred to her smoky eye makeup that she created out of the ash of lies. And as Wolf herself said, Bullshit. She was not ripping on how Sanders looks. She was actually complimenting her eye makeup when she said that. Now, the only thing that came even close was when she made a joke about how when you see when she sees Sanders, there's a list of things that she's not sure are going to happen, including whether or not. And I'm, and I'm paraphrasing here, whether or not suddenly we're going to start picking sides for a softball game. Now, I, the way I interpreted that was that Sanders looks like a softball player. Now, some people really went far with this and claimed that this was effectively Wolf calling Sanders a fat lesbian. <laughs> what? What? <laughs> because all softball players are fat lesbians? I, boy, that's, you know what that reminded me of? That reminded me of the person who thinks that the banana is inherently racist. Wait a minute, you're the racist because the only way you get from a soul banana to, to racism is if you're the one that somehow thinks black people are monkeys, all right? So the idea that Sarah Sanders would be connected to softball immediately means that she's a fat lesbian and says more about you than it does about Michelle Wolf. I've seen a lot of softball players, you know, flipping through the channels. There's a lot of college softball on. I got to tell you, not a bad uh, analysis there. <laughs> a lot of pitchers in college female softball look a lot like Sarah Sanders, for better or for worse. That's the reality of it. But is that inappropriate? What? For that venue? I, there's some been some really harsh things said by the comedians at this venue over the years. So I, I have not, I even asked on Twitter, could someone please tell me, because I can't stand it, when people get accused or convicted now very quickly in the Twitter mob universe of speech crimes when I don't even know what it was they were accused of. 
You know, tell me exactly what the speech crime was. Tell you know because you never see that. That's the number one thing I always get suspicious of whenever ooh, racist remarks or homophobic remarks. And a lot of times the news will never tell you what they actually said. They'll just blanket describe it as racist or homophobic or whatever the hell it is. And, or, you know, and the sexist remarks. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. That's the first sign I'm smelling. I'm smelling bullshit here because you're not telling me what they said. Unless you can tell me exactly what they said. I'm inherently skeptical and very suspicious. Well, that's the case here. What is it that she actually said that was inherently inappropriate? And I get that I'm, I'm obviously a Trump critic, and so I probably have a higher threshold for Trump-related vo- jo- Trump jokes. But by the way, that's another part of this that no one is taking into account, or at least very few people are taking into account. Certainly Fox News Channel is not. Like, for instance... She used the word pussy in regard to Donald Trump. Well, any other president, that would be probably over the line. But you can't say that with Donald Trump. You can't claim that that's over the line with Donald Trump because that word is now appropriate because of his own verbiage and the Access Hollywood tape. So don't get... And I do think that Trump and his attacks on Twitter and elsewhere on public figures constantly in very inappropriate ways does change the rules. And I think the fact that he didn't show up changes the rules too. So we're talking about a guy who with no moral high ground on this issue of inappropriate comments and bullying, especially over the issue of people's looks, who doesn't even have the guts to show up. To me, if anything, those factors should give Michelle Wolf more leeway than less. But that's not how it turned out because we're living in an upside down world. The media decided to attack her because they think she made them look bad by telling the truth, I guess, both about them and about Trump. And so they wanted to make it look like, well, we're not as anti-Trump as as perceived. So we're going to come down on Michelle Wolf and the White House Correspondents Dinner Association put out this utterly gutless statement last night that which didn't even mention her by name didn't even mention her by name saying that she was not within the spirit of the event have these people ever seen this event before have they have they ever been to their own event i mean we're living in just bizarre times everything is upside down nothing nothing makes any goddamn sense and this was another example of that now of course I'm not going to shed too many tears for Michelle Wolf because she's going to be fine. I mean, she's far more famous than she was three days ago. And, you know, now she has a, a liberal uh, fan base. So that'll, you know, she's going to be just fine. But I do think there's a serious issue here with regard to speech standards and this notion that somehow Trump's the winner here. That's the media narrative. Trump's the winner in all this. How the fuck is Donald Trump the winner in this? He chickened out of a charity event. And, and and for Sanders herself, Sanders is someone, and there's a clip that made the rounds on Twitter today, Sanders is someone who has mocked the media for not being able to take Donald Trump's jokes. And maybe that's the most important point of this whole thing. We're now holding a comedian to a higher standard of speech than we are the President of the United States. It's it's bizarre. It's very similar to what's going on with James Comey and his book tour. James Comey is a private citizen who's entitled to his own opinions now, right? Written a book, doing interviews, and somehow he's been getting criticized for having the audacity to talk about Trump's hand size for a half a sentence in the book or about his hair for a full sentence in the book. Maybe it was two sentences. And somehow this is below, below the belt and below the standard of a former FBI director. Well, wait a minute. Hold on a second. (laughs) But it's not below the president of the United States to call him a lying slime ball. And, and, And by the way, with regard to the the Comey issue, since I since I brought it up, since the last time we did a podcast, maybe the most uh, 
impactful thing that's happened on the book tour with Comey is the release of these Comey memos. And I just, I love this. This was classic Colt 45 Trump supporter lack of logic. Led by, among others, the former great one, Mark Levin. Oh, man, man, is Levin just completely humiliated himself in, 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 in kissing the, the orange buttkiss of Donald Trump. But this was really amazing. So follow me on this. So the Colt 45 pro-Trump narrative on the Comey memos is that somehow, I'm, and I'm baffled as to how, somehow these vindicate Trump. They vindicate Trump. And, and the conversations that Comey and Trump apparently had about, for instance, Michael Flynn investigation and Russia and the, the dossier and the P-tape and all that kind of thing. Now, I will acknowledge, because I'm one of the few objective people left in America, and damn it, no one can convince me otherwise, but I digress. I'm one of the last objective people in America, and I will acknowledge that when you read the memos, Trump wasn't quite as much of an imbecile as maybe would have been perceived at first. In other words, he didn't implicate himself 100% as it was possible to have interpreted based upon the initial reporting of what Comey said happened with Trump. So I'm going to give Trump a tiny little bit of credit. If you look at Trump as a mob boss, he's, he's not a complete idiot. He, he's close, but he's not a complete idiot. Although, you know, things like what happened with the Fox and Friends interview where he suddenly admits that uh, Michael Cohen did a tiny little bit of le legal work for him, which was just, now that was really... Right, that was really dumb. But with regard to the Comey memos, it appears as if Trump didn't 100% implicate himself. Maybe Comey was being super kind or super safe. I'm not sure. But here's the part where the Trump supporters really get me. All right, so let's let's just for the sake of argument say, yeah, may, there, you, you can interpret the memos, at least in part, in a way that somehow Trump is able to wiggle out of obstruction of justice. I'm just going to grant you that just for the sake of argument. Here's the problem. In order for that evidence to be real, the memos have to be accurate. And if the memos are accurate, that means two things. You're admitting... James Comey told the truth. And guess what else you're admitting? You're admitting Donald Trump lied. Now, it's only in this bizarro upside-down world where Trump supporters can say, Comey's telling the truth. We're not going to admit to it, but effectively we are. Trump's the liar, but somehow these memos exonerate our hero Donald Trump. And the reason why that's the case is because Trump has said specifically that passages in Comey's memos didn't happen. You can't have it both ways, although I guess you can when you're Donald Trump. Hell, you can have it any way you want when you're Donald Trump and your cult will believe anything. You can say, I didn't have an affair with those women, but boy, if I did, they were kind of hot, weren't they? weren't they? And if, oh, by the way, if I did have an affair... I didn't have anything to do with the payoffs that these women got. So you get, you get to have it whatever your cult wants to believe. They can believe it didn't happen. They can believe it happened and it's good. They can believe it happened and it's good, but he didn't have anything to do with the payoffs. Or they can just believe everything. And the lies are all justified because he's fighting the good fight. Who the fuck is he fighting the good fight for? Himself. I, I, look, I get the ends can sometimes justify the means. Not often, but sometimes. His ends are not for us. His ends are for him. And I still maintain we're going to pay a very, 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 very high price, maybe sometime very soon, for all this stuff that he's doing for himself. So all I ever ask is some semblance of logical consistency, something that Mark Levin used to believe in but no longer does, and a lot of other Trump supporters who used to be conservative titans, They've thrown it all away, all their principles, everything they claim to have believed in, all philosophy, all right and wrong, all logic, everything truth-based. They've thrown it all out because 
Well, it's about ratings. It's about keeping your gig. It's about keeping your status within whatever the hell you're going to call this movement, because it's not the conservative movement anymore. Maybe it never was, but it certainly isn't now. Speaking of that phenomenon, there was another shoe that dropped, which, frankly, I'm amazed it took this long for it to occur. But over the last several days, there's been a purge at the website Red State, which is owned by uh, Salem, a company that I've done a lot of business with, uh, that owns a lot of radio stations, also owns several Internet properties, and they um, own Red State. And Red State has been a conservative website for quite a long time. And it appears as if most, if not all, of the anti-Trump conservatives have been purged from Red State. Now, this is always a very difficult thing to prove. And apparently the way they, they decided on who would co come, and, or not who would go, come, but who would stay and who would go, it was based upon web traffic. Now, right there, by the way, that's an absurd way to determine anything. If, if you're even remotely a credible news or opinion website, if that's the only factor, if web traffic is the only factor, you might as well just do celebrity swimsuits all day. I mean, that's, I mean, that's really all you might, you know, if that's all that matters, just, or, or uh, posts on Kanye West, which is basically what everyone's been doing for the last several days, you know, just make it all about entertainment. So that's the, the first problem right there. But even within that matrix, there's a big problem. And that is that inherently pro-Trump posts are going to do way better traffic than anti-Trump posts. Why? Well, because the majority, we don't know what the exact number is, but the majority of quote-unquote conservative news junkies are pro-Trump. Even more important than that, and, here, and this is actually far more important than the numbers of the population uh, of conservative news junkies, Almost all the other outlets that might link to a red state piece are pro-Trump. And so, therefore, you're far more likely to get linked and therefore get more traffic if you're pro-Trump than if you're anti-Trump. And so this becomes a vicious cycle. And so this uh, Christian uh, media company has decided to get rid of a bunch of people because they're not sufficiently supportive of a guy who's been married three times, had numerous affairs, and uh, clearly has never read the Bible and clearly does not believe in Christianity regardless of what he ever says and never goes to church. That's the world we're living in, folks. That's, that's the upside-down, bizarre world that uh, now exists because of Donald Trump and it's continuing to uh, destroy what was left of the conservative media. Other media have made a couple of interesting decisions, actually somewhat in the reverse. I have said numerous times, watch the National Enquirer. The National Enquirer is a key to understanding what's really going on with Donald Trump because they are effectively Trump's mouthpiece. And even I didn't even know that they were literally an arm of the Trump campaign paying off mistresses like Susan McDougal Karen McDougal. Susan McDougal was Bill Clinton. Karen McDougal's hot. Susan McDougal's not. <laughs> Karen McDougal paying her off during the campaign to keep her quiet. Uh, so the reality is the National Enquirer is part of the Donald pro-Donald Trump organization. They're effectively a part of his, his administration, his campaign. Well, this week's cover goes after who else? Michael Cohen? Michael Cohen. How about that? The National Enquirer is going after Donald Trump's personal attorney, a guy who Trump very recently on Twitter was basically begging not to flip on him. Now, how does that make any damn sense? The National Enquirer is going after Michael Cohen. Now, there's a number of ways to interpret this, but there is no, in my opinion, there is no way to interpret this where Cohen has nothing on Trump. <laughs> because if Cohen had nothing on Trump, there would be no reason to do this. None. Now, there are a couple other possibilities. 
Maybe they're trying to scare him into keeping him on the team and letting him know what might be coming down the pike if he bails on them. That's certainly possible. Or, and this is the most likely, this is the Oxum's Razor explanation, they know damn right well he has dirt. Hell, the National Enquirer, this is the most bizarre part of the National Enquirer report. It's not just that Cohen is Trump's personal attorney. Here you have, listen to this, folks. You have Trump's playboy fixer, the National Enquirer, reporting on Trump's porn star fixer, Michael Cohen. Talk about bizarro world. I mean, holy conflicts of interest, Batman, right? But so the National Enquirer probably has intimate knowledge, and I mean intimate knowledge of the kind of dirt that Michael Cohen has in general and specifically on Donald Trump. And so they may have already determined that Cohen is likely to flip and that therefore they need to destroy him now. Destroy his credibility now. This is the same thing they've been doing with Comey and the same thing they've been doing with Mueller. If there's nothing to worry about, why have you been focused for months and have your minions focused on vicious, horrible, almost entirely nonsensical and unsubstantiated attacks on good people? Flawed, but good people, James Comey and Bob Mueller, two Republicans, at least Comey was until a couple of weeks ago. Why bother doing that? The only reason why you bother doing that is you're fearing something. You need to destroy their credibility so that the cult will not believe them when they come out with their full story. Well, it is certainly logical to presume that that's the same thing going on with Cohen that they need to destroy Cohen's credibility, and it begins with the National Enquirer. I'm open to other explanations, but that's the one that makes the most sense. That's the one that makes the most sense. And frankly, uh, that, <laughs> in some ways, the National Enquirer going after Michael Cohen is maybe the most significant thing that's happened in the last couple of weeks. Because unless there is another explanation, it bodes very poorly for the future. It means we're heading for some really deep shit. Some weird, even by the standards of the Trump presidency, some really weird stuff is going to happen in the not-too-distant future. Speaking of uh, weird, really weird stuff that happened in the distant past, maybe the most amazing story that got very little play uh, since our last podcast dealt with how Trump originally got on the Fortune 400 list. And I wrote a column about this, which you can find at freespeechbroadcasting.com, which I hope you will check out. Because this really um, is amazing to me. You know, supposedly the news media hates Donald Trump. And yet this whole story is how they made Donald Trump. They enabled him. And they're still not going after him on things not only should they, but also I actually think might have an impact. Here's the basic story. I mean, this is stuff you could not possibly make up. And yet it's all true. I have always said that Donald Trump is not rich. He might not be even a little bit rich in comparison to what he claims to be, which is a, a billionaire 10 times over. And if you go back to the early 1980s, and I, I refer to this in the column that I wrote for Mediate as his birth story, his origin story, right? I mean, can you imagine if we found out that Barack Obama really was born in Kenya and he faked his birth certificate? If we found that out today, how big a story would that be? And he's not even president. It'd be pretty fucking big, all right? It would be huge. The right-wing media would be going bananas. It would be, it would be unbelievable. Difference at this point does it make? No, it makes a big difference because it's it would change everything we think we know about him. Plus, a lot of people, including Donald Trump, would be vindicated, even though it's not true and they won't be. But I'm using this as a comparison, as an analogy. I mean, it's it's like if we learn that Jesus Christ was not born in Bethlehem under a star. I mean, it's that kind of deal. Donald Trump's origin story is he became a rich. Manhattan businessman, real estate tycoon, and he's he's got the Midas touch, 
and everything's been wonderful since then, and he rode that to the presidency. Here's what really happened. He lied, not just a little bit, he lied blatantly to get on the original Fortune 400 list. And make no mistake, getting on that Fortune 400 list was everything because it, it, is, it is the traction that allowed him to do everything else. Once he's on the Fortune 400 list, then he's perceived, oh, he's legit. He's really rich. And then the more he acts rich, the more people think he's rich. And then he becomes a celebrity and all these feature stories start happening. And then, by the way, he gets to be a ladies' man because now he's starting to date women he has no business dating and divorcing and remarrying all women he has no business being with based upon his net worth. And then he gets TV gigs and becomes a reality TV star. And all of this feeds on itself. And it all begins with being on the Fortune 400 list, which gave him legitimacy. And it was all bullshit. Not just a little bit of bullshit. He lied about his net worth by maybe a hundredfold. The person who did the reporting on the Fortune 400 that got schnookered and was actually proud of himself for having downgraded Trump's net worth by about, I think it was 20, you know, 20% of what Trump claimed, now believes Trump might not have even been worth $5 million in the early 80s when he got on the Fortune 400 list, which you wouldn't even be able to sniff that list, even in the early 80s. And here's the most amazing part. He lied by claiming that he owned his father's estate, which he did not at that time. And he did so by pretending to be someone else. There's audio proof of this. He did so by claiming to be John Barron. Now, just the embarrassment alone of our current president being reduced to calling a reporter and pretending to be a non-existent person would would be in any other world something we would never stop talking about. We would never stop talking about this. And yet this was a blip because of how desensitized we are thanks to Donald Trump. But it's even worse than that because we've heard of John Barron before. And Trump has claimed, and of all the many stories during the primaries that got no traction, this might be the one that blows my mind the most. Trump during the primaries was found to have done exactly this using John Barron at a much later date than the early 80s to try to get his name in the New York City tabloids to, because John Barron, actually Donald Trump, was bragging about all the hot women Donald Trump was banging. What? And then he got asked about it on the Today Show and he lied. And hung up. Hung up. Now, now, and this guy became the Republican presidential nominee. So the, the Fortune 400 story proves, as if we had any doubt, that the John Barron thing from previous allegations is obviously true. This was clearly his MO. He's probably done it for many, many years. It shows what a fraud he is, what a liar he is, what a sociopath he is, and most importantly, how not rich he is. Because a super rich person hires someone to do that. People use your fucking brains. I have been around a lot of very rich people. And I've been around Donald Trump. I can tell you in 15 seconds, Donald Trump ain't very rich if only because of the bragging. But very rich people don't call up newspaper reporters claiming to be other people. If they want to lie, they have someone else they pay to do it for them. So check out that column at freespeechbroadcasting.com. That, that may go down as the most underreported story of the year so far. Because it, I guarantee you 90, 95% of the American public has no idea that even happened. And then the most obscene part was 
the guy who, from, who no longer works at Fortune does an interview with Chris Cuomo on CNN, and the whole tone of the interview is, gee, that's funny that he, he duped you like that. Yeah, I got duped too, Chris Cuomo said. Boy, I wish Chris Cuomo would realize he got duped by Aaron Fisher, victim number one in the Penn State case, because he's the only one that's ever done an extensive national television interview with him. So Cuomo is very easily duped. But it's the whole tone of, gee, isn't that cute? It's not cute! He's the president of the United States! And he's a lying fraud. His whole story, his whole narrative is a fraud. But while no one knows about that, everybody knows that Kanye West has made some complimentary comments of Donald Trump. That's where we are in conservatism now. The guy who once said on national television after the Katrina hurricane and during the telethon that George Bush doesn't care about black people, a guy who's a megalomaniac, an insane person, by all accounts, a complete moron who will flip in a second, who is acknowledged going through deep mental problems. This is the guy who now speaks for conservatism because he wears a red hat on Twitter and says a couple of nice things about Donald Trump, Kanye West. Kanye West. I got nothing against Kanye West, by the way, because, you know, the, the he and the Kardashians are all in Calabasas. I own property in Calabasas. Good for them. Make Calabasas as famous as possible. It's good for me. But this does not mean he is a credible source for determining that Donald Trump is doing a good job. You pin your movement on Kanye West, good fucking luck. Good fucking luck. And, I, and look, yeah. I'm as in favor of the concept that uh, black people don't need to be voting Democrat as, as anybody. But Kanye West is not your guy. And the fact that uh, we're now living in a world where anything that makes the liberals cry is inherently good is pathetic. It's pathetic. Oh, man. All right. Um, I, I'm going to, by the way, last thing on Trump for this week. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to actually defend Trump on one small thing that he got, I, I think, unfairly criticized for. There was a lot that was made of his comment when he had the Paralympians to the White House where he was talking about you know, how great it was to watch them and all the things they accomplished at the Paralympics, but that it was, quote, tough for him to watch and that, therefore, he wasn't able to do so all the time. And this was perceived by a lot of even credible media types as he's saying, oh, my gosh, he can't bear to watch these Paralympians because he's so against disabled people. No, it's not what he said. It's clear. It's clear as day. He's saying he didn't have time because he's president of the United States. He had to be watching Fox and Friends, people. He had to be watching Hannity. There's a lot of TV to watch when you're president. You can't be watching the Paralympics all day long. So, come on. Let's let's be real here, folks. Now, a couple other uh, topics before uh, this hour is over that don't uh, relate, at least not directly, with Donald Trump. Uh, Joy Reid, what the fuck was that about? Joy Reid from MSNBC getting away. And this, here's the Trump connection. She gets away with a lie that only Donald Trump could get away with. So she claims that these anti- uh, you know, gay and lesbian um, comments apparently she posted on her blog years ago. She claimed that she didn't write them, that she was hacked. She even called in the FBI, which could be a major legal problem for her. And then finally, when an investigation was done, it was clear that she's lying. She says, well, I don't remember writing them, and I, I truly don't believe I wrote them, but if I did, I've changed. Wait a minute, hold on, which is it? That's classic right out of the Trump playbook. You have it both ways. If you want to believe I said it, here's my explanation. If you want to believe I didn't say it, well, then I'm innocent. It's wonderful when that happens. And, of course, she's a black female and it's MSNBC. Because So, obviously, we're just going to go, all right, let's move along, people. Move along. Move along. Nothing to see here. Black, liberal, female. We're okay. Everyone move along. Bill Cosby, interestingly, <laughs> gave up his black card many years ago, and I think that ended up uh, being a major problem for Bill Cosby. Uh, Bill Cosby, of course, was convicted over the last several days. Looks like he's going to spend the rest of his life in prison. I, I've taken an interest in this case for a couple of reasons. 
I've, I've never been a Cosby fan. Never thought he was particularly funny. But his his uh, lawyer for the second trial, first one ended in a mistrial, was Tom Mesereau. Tom Mesereau is a guy I've gotten to know pretty well. I've met with Tom Mesereau privately. I've convinced him that the that Jerry Sandusky is likely innocent in the Penn State case. Um, I've communicated with him several times, interviewed him several times, done in an, an interview uh, alongside of him. So, I mean, I, I'm not going to claim that I'm good friends with Tom Ezra, but I've gotten to know him pretty decently. He's a very smart guy. And for him to lose this case is really amazing. And I think it's an indication of just how the world is changing here fast because of Me Too. Now, there's some positives to that, but there's also some negatives. And I, let me be clear. Gun to my head, I think Cosby is a sexual abuser. He clearly was weird. I think it is theoretically possible that he either did or thought he had consent to be drugging women. Now, the average person can't comprehend that because the average person is not Bill Cosby. You have to remember, Bill Cosby in the 70s, the 80s, and 90s is a god, and he doesn't ever get told no by anybody, and women are willing to do anything for him. So... I think it is theoretically possible that he either thought he had or actually did have consent for this weird fetish that he had. That being said, I'm not I'm not going to defend him personally, all right? Very good chance he's a sex abuser, maybe even a rapist. That there's also though still problems with what happened in this conviction. I bear I bet you don't know cuz the media didn't bother to tell you. Did you know that in this episode where he was convicted and will probably spend the rest of his life in prison for. The prosecution has no idea when it happened. They don't know the date. They don't know the month. They don't even know for sure the year. They have it basically about a two-month time period, which the defense went to great lengths to prove there is not one day in that time period that fits in Cosby's calendar. Now, that alone ought to make you a little concerned. And by the way, it's right up against the statute of limitations. So that becomes even more suspicious, right? Wait a minute. The prosecution knows what the statute of limitations is. And so here we are in a situation where we're right up against it. I mean, like to to the week. We're within a couple of weeks of the statute of limitations, and all of a sudden they 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 have this date without an actual specific date. That's problematic. And if I've learned anything from the Penn State case, why are why are dates so difficult? I'm sorry, you get raped by a legend like Bill Cosby, and you can't tell me what day that happened. I'm not. I'm I'm willing to grant you. Maybe you don't tell anybody. Maybe you're afraid. Maybe you're shocked. Maybe you're not even sure it happened because you were drugged. Whatever. I'm sorry. You ought to be able to tell me with pretty decent certitude when this happened. And the fact that she can't and the prosecution can't and it's right up against the statute of limitations makes me suspicious. The other thing that really bothers me about this, they, there was an interview with the um, one of the jurors, a 22-year-old guy who... who Oh, 22-year-old white guy. Like, Cosby had any shot with a 22-year-old white guy who has no idea who Cosby was. And he he said that the reason why he, he convicted was because of what Cosby said in a deposition where he basically admitted having drugged this woman. And again, that goes to the issue of whether or not he had some bizarre consent. But then the second thing that really bugged me was the juror actually said, that he was concerned about the fact that the accuser's story was contradictory and she had changed it and at one time claimed it didn't happen and that he believed a a prosecution expert that said that, oh, no, you're not to really consider the inconsistent statements of the accuser because that's natural. Whoa, 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 whoa. Hold on. <laughs> that is incredibly dangerous. If that's now the new rule, and it, and frankly, that is what Me Too has been striving for. And they did a great job with, with it in the Sandusky case. They have been striving for getting us to now accept this notion that not only is it okay if an accuser story isn't consistent and, apparent, and, and sometimes has contradictions, 
It's expected. Holy shit. Okay, how do you then possibly defend yourself under those circumstances? It is not possible to defend yourself if an accuser's contradictory statements cannot be used because they are to be not only excused, but expected. Holy shit. Uh, Also accused, although there won't ever be a trial, uh, we don't need trials anymore. We don't need no stinking trials. We can just convict people via Twitter now. Uh, Tom Brokaw got accused. In hour number two, I speak with a former colleague of Tom Brokaw who strongly defends him, uh, Tim Ortman, the author of the book Newsreel. So uh, listen up for that. I, I tend to agree with Tim. I think Tim. I think that Tom Brokaw is getting railroaded or was getting railroaded. Some have come to his defense in the media. I do not trust the story against him. There's questions I have about it. Uh, as far as the timing is concerned. And I do think that his defense uh, was far more vehement and more credible than virtually anybody else who's been targeted by Me Too. So my gut tells me, although I can't be sure, uh, that Tom Brokaw is mostly, if not totally, innocent uh, in that accusation. Finally, I mentioned at the top of the hour that uh, as a host of this podcast, I have a new cause for infamy. I have many, many things about my life that makes me infamous. Uh, but one of them is that I am now uh, clearly the worst coach, worst football coach in the modern history to ever coach a quarterback who ended up as a top 10 draft pick in the National Football League. I- I'm confident that that's me uh, because I was the uh, head coach in the eighth grade at Chadwick Academy for one Josh Rosen who just got drafted number 10 by the Arizona Cardinals. Now, I've spoken about Josh from time to time, and it was an interesting experience having Josh as my quarterback. Let's be clear. I was such a bad coach, we actually lost a game. That'll be my my claim to infamy as a coach, <laughs> especially if Josh ends up having a great NFL career, which a lot of people think that he will. I lost a game in eighth grade with Josh Rosen as my quarterback. Now, that's tough to do. Although, in my defense, Josh did throw an interception in the end zone in the last play of the game. That was his fault. <laughs> so, we still should have won the game. If we had had a decent coach, we would have. But but Josh did not come through uh, you know, with the, uh, the last-second victory like you would think a future NFL <laughs> starting quarterback would do. I've been really stunned by the fact that Josh ended up being a top-10 pick in the National Football League. I think part of that's because... National Football League teams are placing way too much emphasis on the quarterback now. I mean, it's basically all quarterbacks. That's all anyone cares about. And so, you know, teams are now basically like, uh, you know, sex crazed guys at 3 a.m. 3 a.m. in the bar when it comes to quarterbacks. They all got beer goggles. I mean, they uh, any halfway decent quarterback uh, looks like a supermodel. And I think that might be what's happened with Josh because I've been around a lot of athletes. I mean, I've coached different sports. I've covered a lot of different sports. I've been to a lot of sporting events. You can kind of get a sense for who's got it and who doesn't. Now, let's be clear. I always thought, wow, Josh is a hell of an athlete. Josh is a great quarterback. He has he has it, okay? No question. Josh has it, whatever that special it is. But I've never thought he had it to that degree. I mean, let's be clear. Being a top 10 draft pick in the National Football League is really difficult. I'll give you an example. I've mentioned before the head football coach at Steubenville High School, Reno Sakash, who was a former uh, uh, foxhole friend of mine who I've been through a lot of wars with. He has won the second most number of games in the history of the state of Ohio in high school football. Right? Probably this year he'll become number one. To my knowledge, he has never had one player in – his 34 years or whatever it is of coaching high school football ever drafted in the national football league. I coach one year in eighth grade and I've got a top 10 quarterback picked in the number in, in the first round of the draft having nothing to do with me. Obviously it, I'm just giving you an illustration of how difficult it is to get drafted at all in the national football league. Not to mention a top 10 quarterback. I, I realize it's only eighth grade. But Josh was post-puberty. He's the same guy, same physical attributes, 
same mental personality traits. So yeah, it was a long time ago, but, um, and I wish him the best. I hope he does well. And I've restrained from being very critical of him in case somebody picked it up in the media. Not that that was likely, but it was certainly possible with all the pre-draft coverage. I've restrained from, from criticizing him because I didn't want to potentially hurt his, his draft stock, but I'm, I just don't see it. And I, I didn't see it in eighth grade where he, Oftentimes, I didn't listen to anything. I The play calls I made, throwing interceptions uh, all the time. I, granted, he's far more mature now. Um, and I didn't see it at UCLA. I watched almost every game UCLA played, and he never won one significant game. Not one. You would think that a top 10 NFL quarterback would win one significant game. And it's also interesting to note that in this draft, his left tackle got picked in the first round. His center got picked in the fifth round. His wide receiver got picked in the fifth round. This is not a guy who had no weapons around him. And he won no significant games at UCLA. That being said, I do think Arizona is the best place he could have gone. It's a small media market. They're not going to destroy him for having controversial opinions and making cocky statements, which he is very prone to doing and was in eighth grade, just like he is now, which indicates to me he hasn't changed very much. Um, but I do wish him the best. I do think he'll probably have a decent NFL career, but he says he's going to break Tom Brady's records. I'm not going to buy that. Not based upon that college career, not based upon what I saw in eighth grade. But I got that new that new source of infamy. I got that going for me, which is nice, because I got plenty of, <laughs> like I like I needed another source of infamy in my life. <laughs> but it'll be interesting to see what happens to Josh, and I do wish him the best. All right, that'll do it for hour number one. Hour number two, we got that interview with the author of the book, Newsreel. Hour number three, an update on the Penn State saga with a brand new explosive interview that, of course, you will not hear anywhere else. As always, I ask only two things of you. Number one, please share this podcast via social media, Twitter, Facebook, word of mouth, what have you. And number two, if you're one of those people who sleeps, when you sleep, you use sheets, please pay attention to this important message. My name is John Ziegler. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. Coffee? Oh, thanks. How did you sleep? Ugh, like a baby. I don't want to get out of bed. Ever. These sheets are mm, incredibly soft. What did you say they're called again? Performance bedding by Sheiks. <laughs> performance bedding? <laughs> yeah. They're made from super high-tech performance fabric. They're incredibly breathable, so you're not waking up at night throwing covers off and then an hour later throwing them back on. Huh. No wonder I slept so good. Since I started using Sheiks, I sleep like a baby. No more sweaty nights for me. No? Well. <laughs> well, I like them because they're soft. They feel like, mm, silk. Performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should, oh, I don't know. Try them out again. <laughs> <laughs> Comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheiks. S-H-E-E-X. Sheiks. Try Sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com 1212.